so glad that you are here this morning. My name is Brad Talley. If you're here for the first time, I'm the, <clears throat> the teaching elder here at Grace, and I apologize for that. Um, we... I don't know what just happened, but whenever you do that, I always want to go, uh, okay, make sure, make sure everything's all right. <clears throat> it's appropriate, don't you think, that the opening illustration is about the movie Les Miserables. Actually, it's far different. I know you've all seen that, right? How many saw the new one, the uh, What's our Aussie, uh, Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe. How many agree that Russell Crowe cannot sing? That's a horrible thing to do. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, but I think we all agree with that. Uh, the book was written in 1862 by uh, Victor Hugo. The, the themes, it, it's set in early 19th century, and the themes are re- revolution and redemption. You remember the story if you've ever seen it or heard it. If you haven't, I hope you can follow this. Jean Valjean, who is the hero of the story, uh, didn't start out as a hero. He stole a loaf of bread to feed his sister and her starving children, his starving sister and children. He was caught, and as was the case in those days, he went to jail for five years, which turned into 19 years because he tried to escape. Those five years were not easy time. For stealing a loaf of bread. So, after years, all the years of hard labor, Valjean is released to parole under the supervision of the policeman Javert. Now, we could, you know, just so you can keep them separate, I could say, you ever watch the British Open? I love to watch the guys tee off on the British Open from the United States. Tiger Woods, that guy goes, Tiger Woods, you know, from Ireland, Roy McElroy. So I could say Valjean and Javert. Javert's the bad guy. He's the policeman. It's not the, the modern day kind of we're pulling for the bad guys. We want to see mayhem and destruction. You know, we want to see this uppity up. Now, Javert was uppity uppity, but... He was a policeman doing his job. And Valjean is quite bitter from his years in prison and the hard labor. So when he's released, he can't get a job anywhere and goes to a bishop's home. The bishop takes him in overnight. He steals the silver. Very soon they catch him with the silver and they bring him back to the bishop's home. And the bishop covers for him. He says, my friend, you didn't take the best silver. You must have forgotten this. I I gave this to you, but you forgot the best. Well, that radically changes Valjean. He uh, determines to live a new life. He's touched deeply by the kindness of this bishop. He refuses to wear the yellow parole sticker that identifies him as an outcast going underground to live a new life. But in this new life, he becomes quite successful. And when you are successful, you become more public. It's inevitable that sooner or later, 
Javert is going to catch up with Valjean. And surely he does. Javert has sworn to find this man and bring him to justice. He's going to hunt him down like a dog and bring him to justice. It becomes a classic story of law and grace. The law doggedly pursues a man who has indeed broken the law, but who has been freed from the slavery of bitterness and, ironically, from lawlessness. Many years after he nearly captured Valjean, Javert finds himself on the wrong side of a revolutionary band in one of those little revolutions that happen all the time in in Paris. And he finds himself, Valjean finds himself in a position to allow Javert to die. But he steps in and intervenes and says, no, I know this man. Let me have my way with him. And he takes him away from the revolutionary band and frees him. And he says, go. (laughs) Instead of killing Javert Valjean spares his life. And the juxtaposition of law and grace is too much for Javert, who ultimately commits suicide because he is unable to resolve the conflict between law and grace. He just can't. He can't deal with it. Now, I've told you this story to get to this point. If Listen, as, as, as remarkable as this most recent film was, if you've never seen the 1998 version of this movie, it's not, it's not a musical, but Liam Neeson plays Valjean and Jeffrey Rush, another Aussie, plays Javert. Please, if you've never seen it, please allow me to encourage you strongly to watch it. In the climactic scene, Javert captures Valjean in the end, and he takes him to the river. He's got the handcuffs on. He pulls him out, hands a letter to the, to the driver of the, of, the, uh, of the buggy and says, take this to the, uh, to, the, to the head man. It will explain everything. And he's got a gun. And you just think for all the world, if you don't know the story, you think he's going to kill Valjean. But he says, all my life I've been a man who's lived by the rules. And you have not lived by the rules, you see. And I can't take it. That's in essence what he says. So he takes the handcuffs off Valjean, puts him on himself, and then falls backward into the river, committing suicide. Now, can you imagine Valjean in that moment? All his life dogged by the law and by this man who just can't let it go. And he walks away. And if you've ever seen Liam Neeson in anything, you can imagine the expression on his face as it begins to dawn on him. No longer, no longer am I under this awful weight of the law. Have you ever felt like that? You ever felt freed? From something that has bothered you. Something about what you have done that has bothered you for years and years and years. That's the way the Apostle Paul felt when he moved from Romans 7 to Romans 8. He's about to die. 
in Romans 7, when his fleshly efforts to keep the law were a disaster and drove him almost crazy. But in Romans 8, Paul finds freedom from the consequences of the law and freedom from the power of sin and the Holy Spirit of God. Can you imagine the feeling of being hounded all your life by the law and then in one moment, free? Free from judgment, free from penalty, free from guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our text today is Romans 8. We're going to read the first 17 verses. In our text, though, we're going to spend most of the time in four verses. We'll come back to this in a few weeks, but... Right now, we're going to spend most of our time in these four verses, and it has to do with Job. I'll explain all of that in just a moment. If you would, please stand as God's Word is read. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't give life. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also 
be glorified with him. Father, uh, this news is too good to be true. And Lord, I, I know that there are some who are thinking, well, does this apply to me? Do I really have the Spirit? And Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would overwhelm them with your presence and your peace and your comfort. And that you would free us from the spirit of legalism, a desire to please you so that you might accept us. Lord, we serve you. We love you because of what you have done. Help us to believe that and live in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. Here's what we've learned over the past few weeks. If you haven't been here, if this is your first Sunday, I'm just going to go through this really quickly. I'm going to put these slides on, on the city later this week. You can access them. All people who have ever been born are under one of two heads in the human race, Adam or Jesus, who is called in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. Adam came, had a chance. He had original righteousness, but he messed up. Jesus came as human, as God, all at the same time, got it right. Therefore, all are born under Adam, but when we believe, we now are under Jesus. And that makes a difference. Because we are united with Christ, Romans 6, we don't have to sin any longer. Sin has no more power over us. Oh, but Romans 7 tells us that indeed it does. Even though we're no longer in Adam, he remains in us and will until the day that we die, until the day we stand before Jesus. Therefore, we're going to sin. And it's not a matter of choice like, well, I'm just going to choose not to sin this. You, You don't have a choice. It's your nature. It's who you are. It's just the way, you, way it is. But the wonderful news is that because the Holy Spirit of God lives in me, He will fulfill His works. I will keep the law by the Spirit whose work is in me. This can seem confusing, can it? I'm a sinner by nature, but but now I'm in Christ. I don't have to sin. Oh, wait a minute. I do have to sin, But, but then... I can live this life the way the Lord wants me to. Romans 8.1 is a remarkable verse, all on its own. But when it comes on the hills of Romans 7, where Paul is talking about that struggle that we all know all too well, I don't want to sin, but I do that very thing. There are so many things I want to do that please God, but I find myself. How many times do you say, I'm not going to say this, I'm not going to do that, but When the opportunity comes and I'm going to serve God, I'm going to do the right thing. And then boom, just immediately, you do what you've always done. This is really not safe right here. For the truth of Romans 8.1 to ring at this point where we find ourselves failing day after day after day is beyond remarkable. Robert Mounts says this about the truth of no condemnation on the hills of Romans 7. And look, if you don't look up these slides for any other reason than this one, it's worth it. It follows 
that if condemnation as an objective reality has been removed, in other words, as a legal sense, God no longer condemns me. Condemnation has been removed. There is no legitimate place for condemnation as a subjective experience in what I feel. To insist on feeling guilty is another way of insisting on helping God with our salvation. How deeply embedded in human nature is the influence of works righteousness. Close quote. Our Romans 7 experience is no doubt allowed by God. He allows us to just fall and get up and fall and get up and just over and over. Not so that we will not only recognize that we have no hope of salvation apart from Christ, but also that we have no hope of living a spiritual life apart from Jesus' righteousness working through us. The old law always results in death because of the power of sin. The new law of the Spirit promises that by living in union with Christ, the power of sin can be broken in my life. It already is functionally, or excuse me, Legally, it's already broken, but functionally, in in, in my everyday practice, it can be broken. Not that I ever get away from Romans 7, ever. I will sin till the day I die. Every day. Sins that I don't even know I'm committing, I'm doing every day. But the power of sin does not have to have the same kind of dominion that it always has. A few minutes ago when I when we read through our text in in Romans 8, and it talked about if you don't have the Spirit, then you're none of His. Did that go through your mind? I know. I know some of you are doubters. I, I know what it's like. I spent five years, some of the most difficult years of my life, doubting whether I belong to Jesus or not. So I know how that goes. If so, it may be linked to your Romans 7 struggles. Like, how can I be a Christian and live like this? But more than likely, it's linked to a legalistic spirit, a struggle with legalism. I need to prove to God that I'm a Christian by the way that I live. And my failures indicate that God's Spirit doesn't live in me. You're missing the point of Romans 8. I'm not so concerned about your struggle with sin in Romans 7 unless you don't think of it as a struggle. Unless you think, man, I don't have those problems. Or unless you think, okay, I'm, I, I'm just going to not worry about it anymore. I just am who I am. And I'm just going to be anyway, you know. And it's a good thing that I'm saved because I sure can't live the life. And I'm not going to worry about it. That's when I worry about you. Romans 8 is telling you the good news that if you have trusted Christ and you find yourself in this crazy struggle, the Spirit of God lives in you. And as you believe, much more than as you discipline yourself, although discipline is a gift of the Spirit, but as you believe, you'll be changed. Haven't you learned by now, brothers and sisters, that every attempt to live the Christian life apart from the empowering presence of the Spirit of God ends in defeat? 
God sent his son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to deal with sin. In order to deal with sin, it was necessary that Jesus take on flesh. He was and is like us in every way except without sin. Jesus has a body and we will see Jesus in his body throughout eternity. As far as I can tell, Jesus is the only person of the Holy Spirit that we will fully see and grasp and comprehend. Anytime you see the Father in the Scripture, there's this vague description that melts away quickly. It starts off in some kind of form of a human, but then it just moves away. But we will see Jesus for all eternity. He took on our flesh. But it was also necessary that He be divine in order to defeat sin, to deal with sin. Because if he had been born just like we were, he, 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 we are, he would have been born under Adam. But he was the last Adam, the one who got it right. When you start thinking about theology, I've said this several times the last few years, and I will keep saying it just so you get it in your mind. The Trinity, three persons, one nature. Jesus, one person. Two natures. Human nature, divine. So it's not counterintuitive, but it just goes in the, a, a, a bit of a different direction than you think it would, which is counterintuitive, I suppose. Um, but it was in, Jesus had to be exactly who he was in order for us to be freed from sin. Co-eternal co-equal with the Father, and yet human like we are, tempted in every way, yet without sin. We are justified before God when we believe that Jesus lived and died in our place as a substitute and sacrifice. We live the life that he has called us to live when we believe him for our spiritual growth, when we yield to the Spirit living in us. That's not his Maybe as straightforward as you want, just do this, this, and this, and you'll get it. But we'll get to some of that a little bit later. Verses 3 and 4 are crucial to how all of this works. Pay attention to a particular verb in uh, verse 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, you, you see the difference. In, what if it had been written like this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might enable us to fulfill the law. It doesn't say that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled is in the passive voice in the Greek. What does that matter? God formed Greek verbs, or excuse me, Greek verbs are formed. God did ultimately do that, but uh, that's not what I meant to say. Greek verbs are formed with tense, voice, and mood. We've talked about mood and tense these past two weeks. Now we're going to talk about voice. The voice tells us who's responsible for the action, uh, even if it doesn't specifically tell us. 
the active voice, the subject is responsible for the action. Passive voice, the subject is being acted upon. Um, Active voice is, I will walk to school. I'm doing, I'm the one who's doing the walking. Passive voice, I will be taken to school. Bob Terraberry is going to take me to school. So Bob is, even if I don't say Bob's name, I know that someone else is doing the action. The action is being done for me or even to me. That's what the passive voice is all about. So what's the significance in Romans 8, 4? The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in me. I cannot meet these requirements for my salvation so Jesus died in my place that I might be saved. Furthermore, it is impossible for me to live this life in my own strength, though I try very hard to do that. My union with Christ is so significant that when I stand before God, it's as if I had lived a totally righteous life. And even when you think about that, you can understand why people who don't believe want to go, you? It's as if you never sinned? Well, yes. As for my Christian life, my only hope is that the righteous requirements of the law will be met or will be fulfilled in me by the Holy Spirit. Now, I got to tell you, there's some debate in the theological world. Is he talking about salvation? Is he talking about sanctification? Generally, theologians go in one way or another. I tend to think that it's yes. I tend to think that it's both. Clearly, he's talking about our salvation, but clearly, when he walks right into the next phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and then he starts talking about the way that we live in the rest of this chapter. He seems to be indicating both. It's interesting that... um, Romans 8.4 divides people into two categories. Those who walk with the Spirit or those who have the Spirit and those who don't. We tend to divide the world into three categories. Non-Christians, ordinary Christians, and really spiritually minded Christians or spiritual Christians. Paul only allows for two categories. Saved and lost. Those who are in the flesh or those who are in the Spirit, which means... That this life is going to mean something to you. It's not just kind of like, oh, good, I've checked that off. And there are a few things I got to do to keep up my membership, like the Rotary Club. You know, you got to be there so many Thursdays out of the year or whenever they meet. But it's not like that. It's this is your life. And it might not be lived exactly like you want it to be. It might not be going so well these days. But either you're in or you're out. And if you're really struggling, wondering if you're in, you're probably in. If you don't care, you might be out. But it doesn't matter because you don't care. And you won't care until the Spirit of God begins to work in you. We know that those who are in the Spirit are not perfect. 
Romans 7 has taught us that a Christian can look an awful lot like an unbeliever at times. But he or she will always find the way back to Jesus. Actually, this should be in the passive voice. We'll always be brought back to Jesus. It happens to you, doesn't it? You get in that place where you're just... you See, what happens in... If you constantly live this legalistic, guilt-ridden life, I've got to be, I've got to be, I've got to be. After a while, you get numb to failure. And then you just say, look, for, for years you live expecting a car to cross the center line or a telephone pole to drop on you or whatever. You know, God's going to kill me because I'm so bad. But then you say, well, you know, hadn't happened. And so what? Until that day that God just puts it in front of your face. And it's like, well, this is who I am. I've got no choice. And it's not like that. It's like, oh, thank you, Lord, for not letting go of me. It's not a matter of you letting go of Jesus. It's a matter of him not letting go. of He's never going to let go of you. If you belong to him, you're not going anywhere. So quit trying to get away from him. The flesh is a great imitator. And as we said last week, the flesh likes rules. That's why so many of us live moral, who live moral lives feel like we're keeping the law. I mean, it's a law that we fashion for ourselves, but we're keeping it for the most part. What about Christians? Do we ever really walk in the flesh? Do we walk according to the law? As believers, we're said to be walking according to the flesh when we seek to find acceptance and a lack of freedom from condemnation in our own strength by our own good works. When we do that, you know, either we feel miserably guilty or we can start to feel pretty good about ourselves. And we start seeking glory for ourselves. But the gospel will have none of that. It's not going to have any of that. Even so, we are legalists at heart. Okay, God, you saved me. Now, to show you what a great choice you've made. I mean, to show you how grateful I am. I'm going to live for you. You've done your part. And by doggy, I'm going to do mine. Doesn't work that way, does it? In fact, we will always find that we ultimately fail when we try to manage this life on our own. And since our tendency is always toward legalism, we have to constantly be on guard. It can be difficult, though, since legalist and spirit-led believers can look a lot of light. A, a lot of light, don't you think? How do we look alike? Well, first of all, there's good behavior. True spirit-led believers make decent and moral behavior a priority. So do legalists. The Holy Spirit will not allow believers to live any way that they want to live. When you struggle with legalism, though, you're more likely concerned. You're far more concerned about what other people think of you than you are about the Holy Spirit. 
Spiritual discipline. Spirit-led believers go to church. So do legalists. Both read their Bibles, pray, give, witness. And you get the idea. Sensitive consciences. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit doesn't allow you to live just any way you want to live? The legalist conscience makes him want to live for God, but there's no way she can enjoy this relational aspect with the Lord when all you can think about is how do I look? Because if I don't get it right, then something is wrong. That's just too bad. That sentence was all over the map grammatically, but again, you get the idea. Well, what are some ways that legalist and spirit-led believers are different? Since we all struggle with legalism at some point, you you could name quite a few more ways that that we're alike, but we're going to think in just a moment about some some ways that we're different. We want to be like the Romans 8 believer, not the ones that Paul chided in Galatians 3. Three, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is that it? You know, you you just fell on the Lord. You fell on your face. God, if you don't save me, I won't be saved. But then you got up and dusted yourself off and got a little bit of your pride and dignity back, and now I'm going to do it. Let's think about some of the differences. I'm not going to cite scripture references for these, even though there are a lot of direct references that could be cited. But I think you're going to agree that the New Testament draws these kinds of lines and warnings over and over for believers. Um, Once again, you're not going to have time to copy these down, so just look for the slides on the city this week. Uh, Legalists serve God in order to not feel condemned. Spirit-led believers serve because they are not condemned. I'm serving so that I won't feel condemnation. I I just feel so guilty. I I, I have to do this. Spirit-led believers are like, I am free. I'm free. Like Valjean, you know, except... Walking in the Spirit, I am free. Now I'm going to live my life with God's help. Giving to others what He has done for me. Or giving out of the, 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 the treasure chest of what He has given for me. Legalists serve in order to be accepted by God. Spirit-led believers serve because they have been accepted by God. You know, here's some words that I don't use very often. I use them occasionally. But you have disappointed me. I mean, in the first place, who am I to be disappointed, you know, by you? But it's such a judgment about who someone is, not just about your actions, but about who you are. You were a disappointment to me, is what it sounds like, whether it is or not. 
Um, God looks at us and he sees Jesus and he's pleased. And because of that acceptance that we have in the Lord, our hearts are motivated to serve him. Legalists are often stern and unbending when rules are at stake. Spirit-led believers are aware of the need for rules. It's not that they're lawless by any means, but they're grace-filled toward those who struggle. I've told you this not long ago, but a powerful moment in my life was when I was struggling with my heart about someone else and and I read, if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, then my Father in heaven will not forgive you. And it just hit me, God, what you have done for me. It was, it was a turning point in my life. At this point of my life, you know, it'll have to come again and again. That's the way it goes in cycles. But here's something that it's a good time to bring up. Look, the spirit... Filled life is the word-filled life. You can't, can't talk about walking in the Spirit if you're not in the Word. It's not, that's a contradiction. You have to be in the Word in order to walk in the Spirit. Now, just because you're in the Word doesn't mean you can be doing it with the wrong Spirit. And look, this is what all of this boils down to, isn't it? it we look... Legalists and spirit-led believers look a lot alike a lot of times. It all is in the heart. It's all in understanding what God has done for me. And therefore, I want, I'm, I am not, I don't have to sin. I'm not indebted to the sin. I, I'm, I'm in debt to the Lord. And I want to live by the ways of the Spirit But you know what? I recognize that other people struggle just like I do. And so I'm gracious when they fail. Legalists don't often like correction. Spirit-led believers want to be more like Jesus. Well, actually, most of us are like Churchill who said, I am always ready to learn, but I am not always ready to be taught. I think that's most of us. You have made, there's great, let me again, passive voice. Great progress has been made in your life when you receive what others have to say, which is the next point. Legalists easily point out the fault of others and passionately defend themselves. Spirit-led believers are honest with others, yet gracious. They're honest. It's not, you know, if you're a spirit-led Christian, it doesn't mean that you just, you, you don't say anything to somebody who needs to be told certain things. But you're gracious in the way, just like, listen, if you could just treat everybody else the way you treat your spouse, man, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? (laughs) It's the place, is it not? It's the place where we we get to see the full display of God's Spirit 
in our homes, in the way that we treat our children. That doesn't mean don't discipline. It's, look, you know why we need the law? Because we're lawbreakers. In Galatians 5, where Paul talks about the works of the flesh are these, and then he says the works of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And then he says against such there is no law. If the Spirit of God is working in you, you will be. You don't have to worry about your behavior. It will be according to the law. There's no law against love. There's no law against patience. There's no law against discipline, self-discipline. There's no law against those things. As long as the Spirit is the one. Doing the work in you instead of you doing it for your own glory. When others criticize them, spirit-led believers assess the criticism, measuring their lives by the word and the spirit. Expressing gratitude to the one who is pointed out or wrong. Hypocrite of all hypocrites preaching this. Or forgiving those who criticize when necessary. Lord's help me with that. Legalists pursue better behavior. Spirit-led believers pursue conformity to the image of Christ. Tim Keller said this, and this is remarkable. If you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think him or her humble, but happy and incredibly interested in you. If you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think him or her humble, but happy and incredibly interested in you. That's what the Spirit does, isn't it? It makes us interested in others. You know what I've been thinking about this week? Because it just struck me. I I have no idea. These are the things that God does for you, and you may have seen this many years ago. In the case of some of you, many, many years ago. You may have seen this a long time. In Romans 12, when Paul moves from indicative to imperative. Remember class, indicative. He's indicating something, imperative. It's a command based on what, God is, what we know about what God has done for us. Now we're to live our lives. He says, I, and I, it'll be the King James. I beseech you, therefore, brother, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Doing the will of God, that's, that's as far as I got. And that's as much as I've got stored there. And, and, you know, when we talk about that, think about it. It's at a youth rally. Come forward, dedicate your life. It's all about you. It's all about the individual. And then immediately following verse 2 is verse 3. Don't let anyone think more highly than he ought to think. And he talks about the spiritual gifts and how we are to benefit one another. Look, if this Christian life is all about you having your devotions, wonderful faith. Please do have your devotions. But if it's all about you getting control of your life and you, 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 you've missed it. It's not about that. It's about serving one another. We live out this life giving to one another. Not getting how we ought to be so that People will recognize us and applaud us. See, this is where all of Romans 8 is leading. We're going to read the middle chunk in a few weeks when we get to the book of Job. That's the way we're going to introduce it in. 
in Romans 8, 18 through 30. But we're going to look at these last two verses. And Well, you saw verses 31 to 39, I think, during I had to step out during the um, offering. But Romans 8, 29, 30. Those whom he foreknew, he's also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He didn't just elect you for salvation. He didn't just predestine that you be saved. He predestined that you be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus takes his place with us. And because we are united with him, we're perfect like he is. In God's eyes, and we will be Entirely perfect one day. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Quit worrying about your own glory. Any glory that you receive comes from the Lord. And it's a gazillion times better than anything. You can't even measure it. The glory that we bring for ourselves is nothing. It's sin. When we give God glory, in the end, He will glorify us. So, what does it mean to live for the Lord? Well, that's all of what we've been talking about for three weeks. If if you've missed those other two, you can get them online. I'll be happy to send you the transcript if that's the way you'd rather see it. But it ends here. His whole... Pointing to Jesus' work in my life. And yes, we're called to obey. And yes, we're called to put to death the old man and to put on the new man. Yes, it's all a part of this strange way that God works in and through us. The Spirit of God taking sorry, miserable, worthless sometimes we think of in ourselves, of our own flesh, and then using it for His glory and to God be the glory. In just a moment, we're going to take our benevolence offering. Let's close in prayer by giving praise. Hi, I'm Drew Peterson, uh, one of the elders here at Grace, if we haven't gotten a chance to meet. I want to share again along the lines of, of the grace of God from Psalms 103, 10 through 13. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. How far is the east from the west? So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So as we get ready to go into our week, interacting with those around us, may the Lord help us take this knowledge from our mind and put it in our heart. May we live it out each day. May the Lord bless you in your week. Go in peace.